Yeah, it'll be fine. Once once everybody is heard of Yeah. Okay. Um it's really great to be here. Um, I just two and a half years, and I don't know what to say, but it's so nice to be here in person. And thank you so much for coming because this is really, really wonderful. Um, it's been a, an interesting two and a half years, as we all know. And um, and now we're we're fast or unmasked or whatever, but at least we're here in person. Um, so the book that we're going to be talking about today, and I hope there'll be a discussion after I'll present, and now that there are live people, because I'm so used to, at the beginning, it was a phone line, so I made this little recording, and I was talking to myself, and then it was Zoom, and I was looking at myself, and for the first time, I'm looking at other people, which is just really very, very nice. So the Lincoln Highway, um, Amor Tolls who's an author whose books we talked about before. If you remember, um, this is his third novel. His first novel was a book called The Rules of, Civil Rules of Civility, which we did on Zoom in COVID era um, last year. But his first novel, The Gentleman in Moscow, we talked about, we remember that? So yeah. Gentleman in Moscow was actually his second novel. And we talked about it in 2018, back pre-pandemic in 2018. And then I, and I hadn't read Rules of Civility, but I enjoyed Gentleman in Moscow so much. I went back and I read his first novel, which was Rules of Civility. That was the second one, which was Zoom in last year. And now the third one, which is entitled The Lincoln Highway. How many of you read the book? Just to give me an idea. So most of you read the book. Um, they're going to be like lots of spoiler alerts, but that's the way it goes because if, if you want to talk about the book, um, I'm just going to do it as if everybody has read it, or even if you haven't, it's, that's the way, <laughs> like you'll know some of the bits at the end. Um, so he, just to give you a little bit of background about Amor Tolls himself, he's a very interesting fellow, and I don't know if you remember those of you who listened in to Rules of Civility um, when I talked about it last year, I also spoke a little bit about him, uh, but he, he's born, he lives in New York City, and if you've read his other books, how many read Rules of Civility? A Gentleman in Moscow I know was there, so just, just, so it was very much a New York story. And this book, again, even though it spans the, it, it, it it's, takes place in various places in America, a large part of it is in New York City. Mr. Toll himself was not born in New York. He was raised, born and raised outside of Boston, but he's been living in New York for several decades now. And as I said, he's an interesting fellow. He has his undergraduate degree in English literature from Yale and a master's in English literature from Stanford University. So English was his focus. And as he said in one of his interviews, um, which I find is a theme in his books and especially in the Lincoln Highway, is that you can have all your plans or you think that you know the path that life is going to take you. And then things happen along the way. And 
things don't go the way you had planned it, not necessarily for any worse, but just differently. So he said that he set out with all his English degrees, he set out to teach English um, and he was going to China. And he had a job lined up, but then it was 1989 and it was Tiananmen Square and he didn't go to China. So he headed off to New York City. And what do you do when you have a degree, an English degree, you know, in itself, unless you're going into academia, it's not so practical. Um, he headed off to New York City and he was going to try and get a job in publishing. And a friend of his from college said that he was he was working for a hedge fund and did they more want to come along and work with it. And so that's what he ended up doing. He ended up working in investment banking for 20 years, did very well um, in working for this hedge fund. And then he was able to retire and like, to devote himself full time to writing, which is what he did. And his, um, so he said, you know, you never know. My plans were to, that I was going to go and teach English and that was going to be it. And then he ended up having this very successful career in investment banking, but then went on, went back to be able to continue his dream. And his dream always was to write. And so thanks to the Tiananmen Square, you know, and if he couldn't teach English, he ended up in New York and where he's lived, by the way, ever since. Um, he said that he, even, but while he was working in his financial career, he began working on a novel. This was his, it seemed like that was his first one set in the Russian countryside. So maybe, you know, that's where a gentleman in Moscow came, which didn't turn out to be his first novel. He tossed the manuscript after seven years of working on it. Um, and finally, in 2006, he decided he was going to start writing again. He made another effort, this time succeeding with what would become his 2011 debut novel, Rules of Civility, set in New York City, not the one in the, in the Russian countryside. So in 2013, he retired so he could devote himself full time to writing. And his second book was A Gentleman in Moscow. And what, I don't know if you remember this, but it, and that, was, that came out in 2016. According to him, the book was inspired by a business trip that he took to Geneva when he was working in his investment banking career. And he, he said that he had, he stayed in the same hotel in Geneva and he noticed the same people staying in the hotel that he had noticed on previous trips. And he began to wonder, this is where an author's imagination comes into play, what it would be like to be trapped for decades inside a hotel. Not that these guests were necessarily trapped, but that was just gave him the idea. And he wrote his thoughts down on that hotel stationery, notes which he has kept to this very day. And he also said that he keeps notebooks. He has a whole stack of notebooks, like real, just old fashioned notebooks, where he writes down his ideas. And so Rules of Civility came out first, then Gentlemen in Moscow, which was a much longer book, came out second. And now this third one, which is not a short volume either, it's, it's 575 pages. It's quite the epic saga, probably longer than a, a bit longer than a Gentleman in Moscow. Um, this is the novel that came out last year. And he lives in Manhattan with his wife and two children. He calls himself an ardent fan of early 20th century painting, 1950s jazz, 1970s police shows, 
rock and roll on vinyl. <laughs> this is funny. I mean, this is his art. He, is, he probably wrote this bio. Obsolete accessories, manifestos, breakfast pastries, pasta, liquor, snow days, Tuscany, Provence, Disneyland, Hollywood, da da da, da. He goes on and on. Um, card games and cafes. And Bob Dylan, early, middle, and late phases. And rock and roll, like, it, it, anyways, I'll talk about the setting of the book, so, of, of this, the, the time period that this book is set in. I found this interesting review in the Washington Post, and the reviewer there writes the following. He says, this is the reviewer of this book. He says, on a humid afternoon in June 1954, my own parents married in a whitewashed Methodist church in my mother's hometown in rural South Georgia. Rosette windows and palmettos framing the front doors. Vows exchanged, they climbed into a Chevrolet, hood ornament pointed towards a cottage on the Gulf of Mexico. A few black and white snapshots capture their honeymoon. Edges scalloped, remember those black and white scalloped edges of photographs in photo albums with the little corner things that we used to stick them in, 1950s, 1960s. My parents' faces were bright and impossibly young. It is all too easy to peer back at moments from that hopeful post-war era through a veil of nostalgia, even though the economic boom masked darker currents of inequity that would erupt a day later. So that's how he begins his interview, uh, his review of this book. And he says, he goes on to say, and it's that sepia-tinted tension between aspiration and reality that fuels Amor Tolles' newest novel. And it happens to be set in the same month, in June 1954. And I'm just remembering that my actually my own parents got married in June of 1954. This book charts the cross-country adventures of four boys. And you know the four boys, three 18-year-olds and one eight-year-old. And you have Emmett Watson, who is an 18-year-old Nebraskan farm kid just released from a Kansas juvenile detention center after serving 15 months for involuntary manslaughter, his eight-year-old very precocious brother Billy, and two of Emmett's fellow inmates whose names are Duchess, if you remember, a fast-talking swindler, and Wooly, who is the scion of an of an affluent Manhattan family. And I don't know if anybody, well, only one of you has read Rules of Civility, but Wooly was a character. Mr. Mr. Told brings back, he said he likes to occasionally bring back characters from previous novels. So nobody from A Gentleman in Moscow appears in this one. But from Rules of Civility, Wooly's family is mentioned. I don't know if any of you like you read it, if you caught it. So he's back here. And Wooly is he comes from this very, very wealthy Manhattan family raised on, on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. Um, and he, he had also been, we'll find out as the story goes on, he'd been an inmate of this Kansas Juvenile Detention Center as well. So the three juvenile detention um, recent, well, recent inmates or recent, the boys that had been there and the eight-year-old brother of Emmett Watson. And it turns out that Emmett's mother, so these are like four of the main characters, there'll be other characters in the book. There are a number of characters and the story shifts between points of view of these various characters. Whoa. It turned, pardon? Oh, sorry. Emmett's mother, 
um, who it turns out was from the East Coast, she left. She abandoned her family after Billy, who's eight years old by this time. So she left eight years earlier. She left leaving nothing behind her except a trail of a few postcards as to a clue of her whereabouts. Billy's father, who was also an East Coast transplant, and turns out he too came from a very wealthy family that left him artwork and money and the trappings of affluence of the East Coast that Billy's father left. And where he and the mother, they were going homesteading and the father was, had dreams of becoming a farmer, went to Nebraska and was not very good at farming, it turns out. And so they were very deep in debt. In debt. Um, his father has recently died of cancer. Emmett has been incarcerated in this Kansas um, Juvenile Detention Center. A neighbor has been taking care of our precocious little eight-year-old Billy. And when and Emmett comes back now, he's finished serving his sentence of 15 months. He comes back to the farm um, and he turns out that the bank is foreclosing on the farm, but he's reunited with his little brother. And he decides that he's going to indulge eight-year-old Billy's fantasy of trying to find their mother. So, and Billy has this idea that their mother must be out West, must be in San Francisco because of the postcards that she's left. And at this point, Emmett doesn't really have too much. You know, he's just come back. What's he going to do with himself? It turns out that he's been trained as a carpenter. I mean, he's only 18 years old, but he has carpenter skills. And he has this idea, I guess you would call it now house flipping, that he's going to, because that's what he'd been doing, helping to build or, or renovate houses that needed renovation, and then selling them. So he says, but he's going to humor, he's going to indulge his little brother's dream of trying to find their mother in San Francisco. But anyways, it, it sounded like, according to him, this would be a good place to go. This Emmett is a very... Um, street smart or detention center smart 18 year old kid and they're going to go westward so nebraska is kind of in the middle of the country and there's a map for those of you by the way the lincoln highway is a real highway where does the book get its title from i haven't ever realized that it was built in 1912 and it was the first transcontinental, America's first transcontinental highway. And there's a picture of it at the beginning of the book. You see it. Where does it go? It begins in Times Square in New York City. And if you think of it, you know, there's the Lincoln Tunnel in New York. So there's the Lincoln Highway. And it goes cross country and it ends up in San Francisco. And if you look at the map, Nebraska is pretty much in the middle. It's the Midwest in the middle of the country. And this highway goes right across. So Emmett's plan is to take Billy and to go from Nebraska to California to San Francisco. He has a car. He has this old powder blue Studebaker. And remember the Studebaker? It actually happened to be my parents' first car that we had a Studebaker. It wasn't kind of so funny. I'm thinking of this now. It was bit, it was brown. It wasn't like blue, but anyways, it was, I remember Studebaker. So his idea was they're going out from Nebraska to California. There's nothing to keep them in Nebraska. These two brothers, the 18 year old and the eight year old, the father has recently died. The mother had abandoned them and off they're going to go. Except that it turns out that unbeknownst to Emmett, two of his friends, well, former inmates with him in the detention center, have appeared 
and are there presented themselves in his house and said, um, we have other plans. And they explain that they're going to take a little detour. Instead of heading out from Nebraska to San Francisco, um, they steal, they take Emmett's car because they are going to go east to the Adirondacks to try and get the part of Wooly, the, the kid from the wealthy family, his trust fund, because apparently he has $150,000 in a trust fund that his grandfather has left him, and it's locked in a safe in the family compound in this, in this beautiful lodge in the Adirondack Mountain. Again, if you read Rules of Civility, you'll remember that that Adirondack house was described in great detail back in that, in that book as well. So it's kind of fun to see the same places appear in this second novel. So instead of going west to San Francisco, Billy and older brother Emmett have to find, they go, they end up going east to New York City to meet up with the two friends who have borrowed Emmett's car. And so Emmett, He's re he reluctantly agrees to give the pair a lift in his Studebaker, which, as he describes, looked a little like a car that your dentist's wife would drive to bingo. But it was only <laughs> going to take them as far as the bus station in Omaha. Except the friends had, well, the friends. Wooly is this, he's, he's such a, I don't know, such a sad soul, such a sweet fellow. He, he comes from this fabulously wealthy family and he just doesn't fit in. He has, I don't know what, how whatever you would describe him, um, but he's just such a misfit in society in general and particularly in his wealthy Upper East Side um, family. And how he ended up, you know, if you read the book, how he ended up in this Kansas City detention center after having gotten himself kicked out of three very fancy New England boarding schools is that he happens to take a, a fire truck and he, he thinks that he's going to repark the fire truck in another place and it leads to something that ends him ends him up back in this in this detention center. So this Emmett says he's taking his friends only as far as the bus station in Omaha, except they have other ideas. Duchess, who's a con artist and son of con artist Supreme, his father. Um, was it was a was an actor, but also a um, he was a fraud artist. Um, and Duchess has inherited his talents in that respect. And he takes Wooly, who becomes his sidekick because Duchess feels sorry for Wooly. And these are all voices in the book because we get different points of view. The chapters alternate from I think it's about six characters that we get the voices of. We get Emmett and we get Duchess, and we get Wooly, and we get Billy, the younger brother, and we get Sally, the neighbor. Um, and the story alternates as well, and we have another, there are another few of the minor characters. We also hear their voices. The actual, the, the time frame of the book is 10 days. It's only 10 days. And in an interview, Mr. Toll said that when he started to write the book, he started to he says he, he gets ideas for the way he's going to set up a story. And, and in this case, when he was asked, can you tell us a little bit about the structure of the book? How did you set this story up? And he says, as a novelist, as well as a reader, I'm very interested in the role that structure plays in storytelling. Both my rules of civility and a gentleman in Moscow were conceived with very specific structures in mind. Rules of civility, 
was spend one year from a New Year's Eve, from one New Year's Eve to the next in the life of a 25-year-old woman. So he writes, if you remember, from the point of view of a 25-year-old young woman. And the next one, a gentleman in Moscow, spanned 32 years in the life of the main character with, as Mr. Tolls calls it, an accordion-like shape to the book. Now he says, with the Lincoln Highway, from the very first, I imagined it as a story told over 10 days. But he said, when I started to write the book, it was laid out in sections entitled day one, day two, day three, day and so on. And then I was about halfway through writing the first draft and I became frustrated. He said, I didn't like the way the book felt. It felt unwieldy. The sections were cumbersome or slow. And I just didn't like it. So he says, so I went back to the beginning and I began revising. I decided that it should be told as a countdown not as a going up like day one. So he said, so I renamed the sections 10, 9, 8, 7, and that's what the sections of the book are. And within each, so you begin at 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, till you go to one. And within those sections, you have the different voices of the different characters. And he said, um, he said that it made me realize that the the reader would that way get the feeling of knowing that the story was not open-ended, that you were counting, because when you count down, you're counting down to, you know, like when you count a spacecraft, right? Like that's the way they do it. And one, and then blast off. So you, he said, this way the reader would, would know that there was going to be an inescapable conclusion at the end of my story. And so that's what he does. He was asked also, because the Lincoln Highway, so, so what happens here, that this is a road journey, right? This is really all American in the sense that America is a huge country. And now with this Lincoln Highway, which is built, I said, I found out, it says here in 1912, you can drive from one end of the country to another. And it, an American, if you think of American uh, novels, there have been a number of very well-known American stories that are road trips because, you know, the car is also iconic to America. When you think of Europe, you wouldn't think so much of road trips. You would think maybe of train journeys. Yeah, that would probably be it. But in America, it's the car. The car and the open road. Apart from the cities, you've got these vast stretches of prairie and of plain. And so this is going to be another, this book you could say is another addition to the American automobile odyssey as a genre in American fiction. And there is staple of American literature. And Tolls puts his own energizing step on the formula. He actually even borrows, I thought, a few elements from Frank Baum's The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. You know, it's okay, it's Kansas and it's Nebraska and it's like, there's a feel to this as well. There's all kinds of hijinks that ensue in the story when Duchess and Wooly make off with the Studebaker bound for New York, leaving the Watson brothers stranded because Emmett has told Duchess when Duchess shows up, Wooly is just the sidekick. When Duchess says, let's go to New York and Emmett says, no, I'm going the other direction. And then Duchess says, okay, you don't want to this. I'm going to steal your car. And off he goes, he takes the car, leaving the Watson brothers, 18 year old and eight year old stranded. So what did they do? They hop on a freight train. And then you have this whole, which is another American like classic, the freight trains and, and people riding the rails, the guys who rode, ride the rails. And so we have a whole other world of description when the two brothers are trying to get now 
from where they are in Nebraska um, to New York City because they're looking for the car. And they hop a New York bound freight train in pursuit. And en route, Emmett and Billy encounter a cast of Technicolor characters. You have a drunken aristocrat, a grifter ev evangelist, this Pastor John, who tries to steal Billy's collection of silver dollars and turns out to be not a very nice man. Like his name as Pastor John is kind of ironic. And Ulysses, a Black World War II veteran who, like his great namesake, is nearing the lengthy journey back to his wife and son. He's hoping. And they're not in Nebraska anymore. The book shifts very cleverly, I thought. I don't know if you noticed this, if you picked it up, between first and third person narration. And did you wonder why? Because a lot, you know, a lot of people ask that. Why did you switch? What was the what was the point of doing it? Um, and he he answers, Mr. Tom answers, he said that because the characters presented themselves differently to him. And he felt that the characters, because who was told in first person? Duchess is in first person and Sally, the neighbor. He said those voices just came to him because they were such strong characters that, he, that they are in first person. The others are in third person narrative. And he said that when he wrote the other book, when he wrote his other books, he never used first person. Uh, well, he said, he never used the technique of an omniscient narrator. You know, an omniscient narrator is when the narrator knows everything. He says, rather, I prefer to use either first person, rules of civility was told entirely in first person through the point of view of this 25 year old young woman or through a third person, which he says is an extension of the protagonist's tone um, vocabulary and point of view, which is what he used in A Gentleman in Moscow. So he says, in this book, I took both of the techniques. The chapters of the six characters are told in a third person that reflects their point of view of, and their tone, while the chapters of Duchess and Sally are in the first person. So he does it, even though it's third person, you still feel close to the character. He says that and, and he, this is where he just says, Duchess and Sally, they presented themselves to me as first person narrators. So I just have to write them like that. And I trusted that because I feel they're, you know, they have such strong and vocal personality. And so he also said, interesting, I don't know if anybody also picked up talking about the style of the book, that he doesn't use quotation marks. Did anybody notice that? Yeah. So he's asked, he was asked, why don't you use quotation marks? He uses what's called, it's a publishing term, M dashes. You know this, there's N dashes and M dashes. So it's E-N and E-M. And I guess N dash is a short one because it's like the letter N. And then M dash is the longer dash equivalent to the letter M. So if you look at the way the book is written, he has a dash at the beginning instead of quotation marks. And he was asked, why do you do that? And he said, I did the same thing in my previous books. And you know why? And this is really interesting because I never really thought of this. But he said, when, when an author writes with quotation marks, they'll say, and I was going to the store, quotation marks, comma, she said as she looked across the room, and going to buy da-da-da. So he said, so there's like interruptions in between. So I use the technique of just a dash to clarify that this is 
this is conversation, this is dialogue here, but without any where I without any description in between, or even if there was description in between, it's still there. And it just and it just to me, it worked really well. I didn't even realize this till till I realized after, oh, there are no quotation marks, because I thought that it flowed. You know, and when you go back and when you look at it, it's it really works very well. Not that he doesn't have description because he has description as well, but he chose. So that was the reason he said he didn't use quotation marks in case somebody was worried, which was wondering about this. And so he says that. So in his characters, so you've got the very very different voices. You have Duchess's quirky bravado that adds a kick to the story, but also reveals his very astute humanity. Even though he's a con artist, son of a con artist, um, and he says because if you and his companion is Wooly, and remember Wooly, so Wooly, Wooly, there's this, there's this feeling in the story that yes, this is going to be a rollicking saga, a road trip with these with these two brothers and all their adventures, and they're riding the rails, and there's gonna and there are the two other characters, the ones who've gone off in Emmett's car. For which Emmett is trying to, you know, he's trying to catch up with them and trying to get his car and all these various things take place as they're chasing and trying to get the car. But there's also, I think, a sense of there's when there's something very sad about Wooly and a sense of impending something of impending doom, I think, from from not the very beginning, but as we meet the characters, then who knows what is going to happen? Because there is violence in the story. I mean, the boys end up in this correction center, and and and, and why does Emmett? We find out what was he doing there because he it was inadvertent, involuntary manslaughter because he was responsible for the death of this very not nice guy um, who he pushed, and the guy fell back and hit his head and ended up dying. So, which is why Emmett ends up in this in in the in the detention center. Um, the characters are all the our main characters are all these pretty decent people. I mean, Duchess, you could argue maybe not like, but of course he has that upbringing and that father who abandoned him at an early age. And as the book pro progresses, we get more and more of their stories. But I just so the beginning, those of you, well, you read the beginning, I'm not going to, there was one point where Billy, the eight-year-old, explains what the Lincoln Highway is when he says to his brother, you know, you remember how mom left us on the 5th of July? I remember. She wrote us a postcard every day for the next nine days. And and Billy shows Emmett, his older brother, the postcards. This is, as I say, the book opens with Emmett coming home. He's being driven back by the warden of the detention center. He arrives back home at his farmhouse. He's reunited with his brother. Then he finds out that the house is being foreclosed um, and what's gonna happen next. So Billy has a plan. Billy shows his older brother the postcards and he says, let's go and find her. And Billy unfolds a roadmap, which is again, is like ancient history now. I'm just feeling 1950 roadmaps, which who uses roadmaps now? You use Google Maps and whatever ways on your phone. Nobody has actual, very few people have actual maps. So here is this is 1954. Billy, the eight-year-old, very precocious, smart eight-year-old kid, goes into his backpack. He takes out something that looks like a path. When he unfolded it on the table, Emmett could see that it was a roadmap of the United States from a Phillips 66 gas station. 
Cutting all the way across the middle of the map was a roadway that had been scored by Billy in black ink. And that's the picture at the front of the story, at the front of the book. The Western, in the Western half of the country, the names of the nine towns along the route had been circled, nine towns. This is the Lincoln Highway, explained Billy. He's explaining this to his older brother, pointing to the long black it was invented in 1912 and named for Abraham Lincoln and was the very first road to stretch from one end of America to the other. Starting on the Atlantic seaboard, Billy began following the highway with his fingertip. It starts in Times Square in New York City and it ends 3,390 miles away in Lincoln Park in San Francisco. And it passes right through Central City which is just 25 miles from our house. This is when they're still there at the beginning in Nebraska. When mom left us on the 5th of July, this is the way she went. And Billy lays out the different postcards, placing each card under the corresponding town on the map. And Billy gives, he gave an exhale of satisfaction when he sees the cards all laid out very orderly. And then Emmett says to him, but Billy, I'm not sure we're going to go to California. We have to go to California, Emmett. Don't you see? That's why she sent us the postcard, so that we could follow her. But she hasn't sent us the postcard in eight years. Because July 13th was when she stopped moving. All we have to do is take the Lincoln Highway to San Francisco, and that's where we'll find her. This, like, sweet, I mean, it's kind of heartbreaking. Eight-year-old boy, his mother has, has abandoned him, and this is what he's telling his older brother who just got back from detention center. Emmett's immediate dis instinct was to say something to his brother that was sensible and dissuasive, something about how their mother didn't necessarily stop in San Francisco, that she could, how she could easily have continued on and most likely had, and that while she might have been thinking of her sons on those first nine nights, all evidence suggested that she hadn't been thinking about them ever since. In the end, he settled for pointing out that even if she were in San Francisco, it would be virtually impossible for them to find her. And Billy answers, he's like, he, it's like the descriptions are so wonderful. Billy says, yes, yeah, I thought of that. But, and Billy has an answer for this too. Remember that you told me how mom loved fireworks so much? She took us all the way to Seward on the 4th of July just so we could see the big display. So he says, we have to get to San Francisco by the 4th of July and we'll go to the park every year, Lincoln Park, San Francisco's largest park. They have every year on the 4th of July, one of the biggest firework displays in all of California. So that's where our mother's going to be. So it's simple. We just have to get ourselves there, be there on the 4th of July, go to the fireworks display, and we will find our mother. And Emmett agrees to this. And that starts, even though he doesn't really believe that this is going to work out, and that starts out the adventure. And so it continues for 575 pages longer, <laughs> this adventure, with all kinds of characters, with all kinds of, you know, diversions. They don't end up going westward 1,500 miles. They go, as, as Emmett points out, 1,500 miles the wrong direction, only to have to try and go back 3,000 miles in the right direction, right? In the, in the direction that he intended to um, at the beginning. 
And along the way, we get to know the characters, we get to meet all these different and really very colorful, the imagination of this author is really something. You can also see that he's a very, I mean, an English literature background is there. There's a lot of Greek mythology, you know, this character of Ulysses, and what precocious eight-year-old Billy, he brings along with him in his backpack. He has his favorite book, which is a compendium of adventure stories written by this professor with this strange sounding name. Um, and one of the stories there is Ulysses. And Ulysses, you know, is a story, the travel story. Um, and, the, and the author of the book clearly knows all these different adventure stories. He writes with such a, to me, such an intelligence and such a sense of humor and such a sense of humanity that, and that to me is one of the, the noteworthy aspects of his fiction. And as I said, it definitely the, you know, the characters, this, this first and third person narrative shifts very cleverly that you don't really even notice. You get to know the six main characters as well as get the other more, you know, smaller characters. You, and, and just the way, the different little bits of the way, he, I mean, there's so much to read, just read the book. But I, you know, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to, which little excerpts I wanted to read to you to quote. So for example, the character of Wooly, who was this boy from this 18 year old from this very, very wealthy um, family, who's just something he doesn't fit in. And, and, and he's sweet and he's kind and he's just not happy. And Duchess, who's taken him under his wing, this very street smart, and it turns out illiterate young man whose father was the, was the actor and the con artist consummate who's abandoned Duchess as well. And there's so, there's so much abandonment in this story. I think, you know, that's one of the themes of the way different characters have been abandoned. So, for example, Duchess, when he describes Wooly, he says, you know, he was raised in one of those doorman buildings on the Upper East Side. He had a house in the country, a driver in the car, and a cook in the kitchen. His grandfather was friends with Teddy and Franklin Roosevelt. There's a tender sort of soul who in the face of such abundance feels a sense of looming trepidation, like the whole pile of houses and cars and Roosevelt's is going to come tumbling down on top of him. And it's a little bit of foreshadowing of what's going to happen at the end of the story. So you have, you have sadness to the ending, not only sadness, but you definitely have these, these, these plaintive and sad bits to the story with narrated with expression. Duchess has this voice with such expression. And then by contrast, you have Emmett's sections Emmett is the boy from Nebraska, narrated in a close third person. His, his prose is very plain, largely because he's somewhat of a, I don't know, how would you call him, a cipher. He's kind of buffeted around by twisters of his own making. And yet the whole novel is tied together by the author. His, and, the, and to me, what comes through is that that Amor Towles' America in this book is, it's really a period time piece. You have to put yourself back, 1954, powder blue Studebakers, roadmaps of America, gas probably cost a couple of cents a gallon, and uh, well, 1954, probably not, not everybody had a car the way they did maybe more in the 60s and in the 70s, but his America in this book anyway, 
brims with outcasts scrambling over scraps from the Emerald City, con artists behind the curtain, and the innocence that they exploit. The book is full of the, of the author reveling in boxcars and flop houses and CD bars, which you could kind of say are like the junkyard of failed dreams. And as Duchess, again, this character of Duchess opines in his first person voice, when it comes to waiting, has-beens have plenty of practice, like for the bars to open, for the welfare check to arrive. And they, before too long, eventually something will happen. And in the book at the end, eventually to Duchess, I don't have to necessarily give this away, but something happens as well. And the story ends with the boys. Well, they, anyways, we're gonna go into the details at the end of the story, but the, the road trip ends where Duchess had wanted it to, which is in the Adirondack, you know, this, this magnificent camp that the, that the Wolcott family has in the Adirondack, just before we hope that Emmett and Brother Billy are going to be able to set back the opposite direction on the Lincoln Highway. And this is what, at the very end of the book, Billy says to his brother, um, I think if we're going to do this, when they get the car back, if we're going to do it, we should go down to, to, to Times Square because we have to begin our cross-country trip the other way properly there. And if we start right away, we can make it by the 4th of July. And hopefully, you know, he's this is eight-year-old kid who is just really all he wants to do is to find his mother. And he says that... What he wanted to do in the book too, you could call it, what's the, the fancy word, Bildungsroman, which is a, you know, a coming of age story, which is really what it is as well. And he says here, when he's asked, like um, the transition from childhood to youth to adulthood in your main characters is compressed in this book into a matter of 10 days, because that's the actual action of the story. I mean, you get a lot more background, of course, 575 pages. It's not just the 10 days, but the, the, the book is 10 days. So he, when he was asked to comment on that, he makes, which I thought was a very interesting point. He says, when children are young, the nuclear family is a very tight unit, even when it's dysfunctional. The relationships between husband and wife, parents and children, among siblings, they are very much there. They're the focus. They govern the habits and the behaviors. They influence perspectives and emotion. And you can remember back to your own childhood. You know, when you're young, your household is what you know. And it's only when you get a little older that you go over to a friend's house, however old you are, four, five, six, seven, and you realize that things are done differently. But he says, but when children come of age in their late teens and early 20s, the household begins to naturally unwind. As young adults go off to college, enter careers, get marriage, their focus shifts away from the household in which they were raised towards a world that they must shape for themselves. So he says, I wanted my book to show, he says, this is about this transition in a concentrated fashion. Emmett, Duchess, Wooly, and Sally, and Sally is the neighbor from Nebraska, 
She's this feisty young woman, a kind of woman's liver ahead of her time, who's been her, who's been up till now, and she's also a young woman, 18, 19 years old. She has to take care of the house in the farm, because she lives on the farm next door to where Emmett and Billy live, um, and taking care of her father. And she's very resentful of the fact that her days are spent cooking and cleaning and washing, and her father just seems to be totally ungrateful for it. And when she gets her first opportunity, she talks into her pickup truck and drives off to New York City to, to find Emmett and Billy as well. And she has that. And so that's why the author said she has a first-person voice, because he felt that she had to be a very strong character. Um, so he says, the author, that this book, The Lincoln Highway, is about this transition from childhood, youth, to young adulthood. And my main characters are all in the process of moving on from the family structure in which they were raised to some unknown world of their own fashioning with all the challenges and opportunities, all the insights and illusions that the transition implies. And just one more uh, comment I wanted to, just one thing I wanted to say, and then if we'd like to have some discussion, is why did he set it in 1954? Why did he pick this particular time? So he said that 1954, America was at peace. The Korean War had just ended, and the Vietnam War had not yet begun, and America's involvement was not yet, you know, not going to be, they weren't going to be so involved for a few more years. And things, the economy was booming. And he said, um, although America, you know, there was the beginning, you know, America didn't wrap up its full military presence in Vietnam until 1965. In November 1955, President Eisenhower deployed the Military Assistance Advisory Group, which were American military personnel sent to South to train the South Vietnamese Armed Forces. So that was the first, that was just going to be happening a year later. But 1954, America was at peace. The battle for civil rights in America and the character of Ulysses, who is that black man who is searching for his wife and his child. The battle for civil rights in America is as old as the Union itself. But in 1954, the modern civil rights movement was about to begin. On May 17th, which was just a month before the time setting of this book, the Supreme Court handed down its landmark decision on Brown versus Board of Education of Topeka initiating the end of legal segregation and the concept of separate but evil, at least on paper. And in the decade that was thought that followed would come Rosa Parks' refusal, remember that she wouldn't get up to give her seat on the bus, and the resulting Montgomery bus boycott led by Martin Luther King, 1955, the lunch counter protest, 1960, the Freedom Riders, 1961, the March on Washington, 1963, and all these. So it was the beginning of the civil rights era. Also, what became known as the sexual revolution was about to begin. Apparently, I didn't know this fact. In December of 1953, Hugh Hefner published his first issue of Playboy magazine with uh, Marilyn Monroe as his centerfold, launching, as Amor Charles said when he answered this question, a new era of publicly acceptable pornography. That same year, the Kinsey Report was released um, and then it would take off eventually 1961 when the pill was approved. So this was this this setting of 1954, he chose it very, very 
asking him for a definite reason. He also said, television and rock and roll, two of the greatest cultural influences of the 20th century were also about to take off in America. In 1950, there were only 1 million households in the US with a television set. By 1954, 30 million was the number of households. And by 1959, 88% of US households would have at least one television set. And in those first 10 years of television, many of the lasting formats and idioms of the television, you know, of that medium were defined from the evening news broadcast to the sitcom, from the soap opera to the late night talk show. So he said, and also rock and roll. And Amor Tolls is a big rock and roll fan. He said, 1954, the two big hits, Shake, Rattle and Roll and Rock Around the Clock by Billy Haley on the Comets. 1954 was for those, was, was, were released that year. So this is really an iconic you know, year in America. And this is what the book celebrates. And he says, finally, in 1954, the road culture of modern America was about to begin. So that's why he created this road story. In 1954, America had, these are his statistics, which just add to the, you know, to the interest that's interesting in the book, that America had only 6% of the world's population and 60% of its cars. So like, you may say car, but the automobile was primarily used as a local convenience because distances were great. But when the Lincoln Highway was conceived of by Carl Fisher in 1912, at that time, 90% of America's roads back in 1912 were not paid. In the 1920s, the federal government, the American federal government invested a lot in highways and they, and they established the first numbered routes you know, roads had became, had numbers, but long distance roads were fairly rudimentary for decades. It wasn't until June 1956 that the Federal Aid Highway Act passed and the interstate highway system began being built. So multi-lane high-speed highways crossing the nation, you know, transportation of goods and workers and vacationers and all that. And that was going to, that was taking off. So, but he said, Back in 1954, so it was still relatively new at the time, Holiday Inn only had three locations, but it would have 500 10 years later and 1,000 by 1968. 1954 was the year that both McDonald's and Burger King were locked. There also seems to be, you remember Howard Johnson, he mentions it, Howard Johnson, because Wooly loved Howard Johnson, so we're Wooly. Wooly, who stayed in the fanciest hotels, whose parents slept there, his mother slept him around the world to see the Parthenon and this, and he has this, Wooly has this one passage where he says, he, he, he described this in Wooly's voice, and he said, okay, one last thing I'll read you, in, in a chapter that Wooly is, um, was, this is Wooly's chapter, he writes, it was on a trip to Greece with his mother in 1946 while standing at the foot of the Parthenon that Woolley first gained an inkling of the list with a capital L. At that itemization of all the places that one was supposed to see, there it is, she had said, this is Woolley's mother, while fanning herself with her map when they had reached the dusty summit overlooking, overlooking Athens, the Parthenon in all its glory. In attention to the, in addition to the Parthenon, as Woolley was soon to learn, there were the Piazza San Marco in Venice, the Louvre in Paris, and the Uffizi in Florence. 
There was a Sistan Chapel and Notre Dame and Westminster Abbey. It was something of a mystery to Woolley where the list came from. It seemed to have been compiled by various scholars and eminent historians long before he was born. No one had ever quite explained to Woolley why one needed to see all those places on the list, but there was no mistaking the importance of doing so. For his elders would inevitably praise him if he had seen one, frowned at him if he expressed disinterest in one, and chastised him in no uncertain terms if he happened to be in the vicinity of one and failed to pay it a visit. And so, you know, this is just Woolley's describing. He just doesn't get it. And he comes from this. And so anyway, so this is what Woolley has grown up. These are the places that he wants to see, but he likes Howard Johnson restaurants. Orange and blue, right? That's the color combination as he points out in the book. Those were, that's the color scheme of Howard Johnson's restaurant. So while great cultural shifts that defined America from 1955 to 1970 were not yet dominating the headlines in 1954, they were just simmering beneath the surface. And that's why the author truly chose to set the book at this particular period in time. I thought this is a long and winding road, this novel, but it's, an, it's, it's a road that the author's motley crew navigates with brains, with heart, great heart, and with courage. It's a novel of the contradictions of the human character, that the author with a very skillful hand, at least in my opinion, guides the reader forward with a kind of floating sensation, like one who's being carried down a wide river on a warm summer day. And it's not, you know, June, so the book place, it does take place on warm summer days. Um, and by the end, I say the ending has, you know, it's bittersweet components to it. But this is, in my mind, Amor Tal's his third, his third novel. And really, and so different from his others. You know, he had Rules of Civility in New York, and you had Gentlemen in Moscow, 30 Years in That Life, and the first one, one year, and here, 10 Days, an American Road Saga. When he was asked in the last question of an interview, what are you working on next? He gave the cryptic answer, something different. So we'll see what it is going to be. I don't know, but he's an author who's able to, to work his magic in all kinds of ways. Any questions, comments? Anybody wanted to? Those of you who read the book, when did you? I, I have an idea about why Wooly would have been the first person. No. Because maybe it was the only way to make him a sympathetic character because, because he was a kind artist. Oh, Duchess. I mean, Duchess, right. I, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah, and that maybe we have to hear his own voice, yeah, so that we could empathize or at least uh, recognize the who he is. Like, like when he went to Har to Harlem to get to get punched in the back. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like, yeah. we had to, we needed to understand that there he had, there was, there was, a, there was a, he had values. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I just like that. Yeah. No, it, that's interesting that it's true because if he would have, you know, when Duchess did this and Duchess did that, even though his third person is very close third person, yeah. um, it's still, it's not the same as hearing from himself. And like you said, like, why would he go? What kind of logic is this that he goes and he presents himself to Townhouse, another former um, inmate of this correctional facility and says, punch me, hit me. I deserve it. You know, you, I deserve to get punched because I was the one because of what I did that you ended up getting getting the beating that you did that you had to suffer that beating. So now give me back what I deserve. And it's like, 
and these guys are like, are you out of your mind? And no, 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 really stand here. And he let himself get hit. And it's true from Duchess's point of view. So there's this idea of a, of a of, of justice and, and, you know, his idea of what's justice and what's morally right. And given his father who abandoned him and who did the ups, because really of all the abandonment, like Emmett and Billy's mother abandons them at, 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 when Billy is just an infant, then it turns out Duchess's, um, I mean, father throws him into, into, you know, sets him up so that his, can you imagine this? Sets him up so that his son is incarcerated for stealing something because he wants to get rid of his boy. I mean, it's, you know, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and Duchess's values are very, very strong because uh, one, he wanted to go to New York because of Townsend. He wanted to even... The, the, the to make himself pay when yeah, he felt he had to, yeah. that, that he got even with, with Duchess. But he wanted Wooly to get his inheritance. Yeah. And he had no intention of taking the money from him. He he wanted to get he wanted Wooly to have the money. Yeah. And the other thing too is that as if you recall, um uh Emmett had, had stored some money in the trunk of the, the car yeah. so that they probably and his father had bequeathed and yeah. left him yeah not much, no to i mean relatively right back in 54 three thousand dollars it wasn't like nothing but it wasn't 150 that yeah, uh, yeah. Be enough for him to yeah. To to right to start his business yeah and Duchess would give take some of that money but he kept, he kept this strict he kept counting yeah 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 so there was there was really hard yes yeah, you know, he ended up, like you said, in the in the recordatory because his father set him up. Yeah, he he, he he of all of them, he didn't do anything. No, he didn't. He didn't. He didn't do anything, not even slightly. And then, what do you think of that ending? The you know the ending where like you know, and, and he was asked. The author was asked, "What do you think? You know, will how will Emmett feel?" if he finds out what happened and the author answers this is like it's always going to be interesting question and answer with authors um he says that i don't think that emmett is likely ever to find out what happened to duchess because for he says no one has any reason to suspect that billy and emmett were in the adirondacks in the first place and duchess's end will be viewed as an accident so the author is not worried that that Emmett will ever find out and have to live with you know the guilt of what happened there. Yeah, he, he didn't know that Emmett was going. No, and that wasn't his intention. His intention was in the way the whole thing was set up at the end with the rocks and the boat, and then he like, made him from getting yeah from yeah. And if the wind wouldn't have blown and the notes wouldn't have started to flutter away and he wouldn't have leaned over and you know yeah. So, anyways. And then you you can imagine how Billy and Emmett fare west with the benefits. And you wonder, day. right? But you wonder the whole thing is so open ended. You don't know what's going to happen. Will they find their mother? Is this the you know, dream of this eight year old kid that they're going to find their mother? They don't know. And again, this one, Wooly is describing, 
And and Willie's looking around. Willie, that's why I said you know, we have this list. You have to go through the Parthenon and the Sistine Chapel and the Uffizi and all these places in Europe where the his family you had to go. But what about he never saw the Brooklyn Bridge and he never saw you know places in New York because he grew up on the Upper East Side and where did he go? I mean in America up to the Adirondacks and you didn't need to cross ever the Brooklyn Bridge or you didn't need to go on any of those roads. And when he sees the elevated, remember that scene where the abandoned railway and he's, they're up there and all this overgrowth. And Willie says, oh, and one thing he, that had bothered him about New York was it's permanent. And here he sees that, you know, when something like there's not such permanence, this, this whole railroad is abandoned and overgrown with weeds. Um, and he's thrilled by all of this. Like he's like, and the Empire State Building and the Statue of Liberty in a distance. He's never seen his own city because that wasn't on the list of what the Woolcott family did. Um, any other? Yeah. One of the things I found writing is that I, I read um, Gentleman in Moscow a number of years ago. Yeah. But I think it's from London. I think I don't somebody reviewed it there. I'm not sure. It wasn't here. But anyway. And the Lincoln Highway recently, but I still have visuals from many stores and, and from this. And I, so I think that he, he's so amazing in creating images that remain yeah. in the mind. Yeah, he's, he's, it, that coupled with his his understanding of human nature, yeah. you know, the like the psyche of his character. All genders and age, all uh, genders and age. The, the book that we can read, um, not, not the last that one, but the oh, girls in the little disability. Yeah, did you feel that he got, um, that, that, that it was written from the point of view of, of a 25 year old woman? I thought that was an interesting yeah. that he got the voice there of yeah. that character. Yeah, that was based on, and he started that story because he saw a series of, which you probably have seen, of photographs taken during the Depression of people sitting on the subway. Walker Evans, a well known photographer, carried a camera. I mean, this is real. He carried a camera in his coat jacket and he took pictures of people sitting in the New York City subway system. And there was an exhibit of them. And that's what he based Rules of Civility on and created this also a very particular time period a year in the life of this of this one 25 year old young woman i thought he did it cleverly as well it was a much shorter book than the other two but yeah worth reading especially because the characters like there are bits pieces of this in there as well so it would be interesting if you see what he writes about these last years now you mean no, what I mean is he writes a book about what is happening in the States in the last. Oh, I wonder. Well, you know, when he was asked, what are you writing about now? And he said something different. So who knows? Maybe, maybe. Really, who knows? Yeah, that would be interesting. He's, he's an author of, um, well, in, in two out of the three books, very much a New Yorker, like by now. You know, it's so much of New York is, is part of his book, uh, of those two books. So Moscow was different, but um, yeah. Interesting. I thought that was interesting too that he got the the idea for the gentleman in Moscow when he stayed in a hotel in Geneva and thought, oh, what would it be like to be stuck in a hotel? Or so he created the character of that aristocrat who was imprisoned in Hotel Metropole for thirty years of his life. Um, yeah. Okay. So. Yes.
and you can remember back to those to those uh, incidents that happened. Because I found this was a, a, a book about men living like what men. Like, uh, well, they were young, yeah, young boy. I mean, it was, yeah, most of the characters were, although you had Sally. I mean, she was the one, the one feisty young woman who left the farm in Nebraska and then, and it seemed like was interested in heading off to California. But the the main part of the characters were. As you can recall, the first McDonald's in Montreal was in 1967, and this was 1954. You can imagine how far behind we were in the American. Oh, the fine American culinary experience. Yeah. Very much. Right, right. Sorry. Well, we sit, Sarah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that was. Portray her quite differently, quite differently, but also very sympathetic. And, and her husband. Oh, and did anybody catch that? Dennis, the only place quotation marks were used was with the character of Dennis. Dennis is Sarah, Willie's brother in law. And he's always the same as Rick Dennis in quotation marks. So he was asked, somebody said in one of the questions, I was just reading online questions, why is why his name had a quotation mark? So he said, I just imagine him in such a self-absorbed, pompous, obnoxious character. I mean, he didn't say that with me, but I'm rephrasing it. That I can imagine that when Wooly was first introduced, and Sarah's this kind, sweet, she's the one who takes care of her brother. Like she she would try to take care of him. Um, and and Dennis is probably socially acceptable, and that's why she marries him because they're so very different. That when Dennis introduces himself to Wooly, younger brother Wooly, that he's mm -hmm, so that Tolls wrote him always as Dennis in quotation marks because he's like so full of himself. So that was why, in case you were wondering, like Dennis is always in quotation marks. You're welcome. Pardon? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, thank you very much. You're welcome. You're welcome. It was so much fun. It was so much fun to be here.